Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Torah Studies. So this is our weekly exploration of Torah. Usually, we cover the Torah portion of the week. However, since Saturday night begins a very special holiday, the holiday of Shavuot. Shavuos or Shavuot. So therefore, we're going to be focusing on the holiday and drawing out important life lessons from the holiday. I want to share with you the following. Here's an outline of tonight's class. We're going to present three sources that on their surface require a lot of explanation. They're enigmatic, they're puzzling, they don't make, it doesn't seem to make full sense. Two Talmudic sources and one Midrashic. We're going to cite them, explore them, question them, take them apart, and hopefully reconstruct them in a way that makes a ton of sense and in a way that's meaningful, that resonates for you and I. So that's the goal of tonight. Oh, and in the process, learn about the holiday as well. That's, that's the goal for tonight. Let's begin. So 3,330 years ago, Sunday, this Sunday, so we're a, little, a few days away, but 3,330 years ago from this coming Sunday, uh, the Jews stood at Mount Sinai and received the Torah. That is, that is considered to be a seminal moment a foundational moment, a transformative moment in the history of the universe and in the history of the world and in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, the Torah, the gift of Torah was given to the Jewish people. The question is, the opening question is, what was the big deal? What's the significance of that? What actually happened? What, we got a, we got a, a, um, a law book. Anybody study for a driving test? Yes, we all did at some point. Yeah, you know, before you get your permit, you take a written test. And then before you get license, your license, you, get, you take a, a driving test. What do you get tested for the written test on? The laws. And how do you know the laws? What do you study from? They give you the handbook, right? You go down to the DMV. I'm sure today you can download it, whatever it is. Maybe there's an app. And you get the thing. You get the booklet. You read it. You get a test. You ace it. Now you can operate a 2,000-pound motor vehicle because you answered a few questions. That makes a lot of sense. Anyway, so that's fine. I'm cool with that. Hey, that's, we've all been there. You celebrate, perhaps, maybe the day that you got your license, maybe the day you got your permit, but not the day you picked up the rule book. I don't think anybody's ever like, yes, I got the rule book. Let's celebrate and let's, let's mark as an anniversary. Maybe the first time you get the book, so it's significant because now you can learn and get your permit, so it's the first step. But come on, on the anniversary of the day that you got the rule book, you're going to celebrate? What's, what's Shavuot? It's the day that we got... The rules, the do's and the don'ts, 613 commandments, obligations, divine interferences. Do this, to, I mean, God forbid, right? But, but, but divine, like God's telling us how to live. Do this, don't do that. And so we celebrate what's really going on, what really happened at Sinai. So that's an overarching question. Before we address that, let's look at what got us to that point. So open up the Chumash, please, to the book of Exodus. Torah portion is... Yitro or Yisro, you can find it in the Chumash on page number, page, 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 four, yes, 400 and, wait, 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 465. Let's do 465. So yeah, the background of this is the Jews were in Egypt for a few hundred years. They left Egypt after 10 plagues. They crossed the sea. And now, just a few weeks after the Exodus, they are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Lisa, please get us started. 465, chapter 19, verse 1, where it says, On the first day. On the first day of the third month, after the children of Israel's departure from Egypt, they arrived at the desert of Sinai. They had departed from Rephidim doing Teshuva, and they arrived at the desert of Sinai doing Teshuva. They encamped in the desert. Israel encamped there towards the east side of the mountain in a state of total unity, as if they were one single person with one heart. Okay, thank you. The narrative continues on 467, and Moses and God have a dialogue. God tells Moses various things to relate to the people. Moses relates these ideas to the people. The people respond. Okay, it goes back and forth, back and forth. 
469, I'm just, uh, we're just going to see what happens over here, just kind of an overview. 469, we have additional preparations for the giving of the Torah. Three days, the Jews were told to specifically prepare for the giving of the Torah, although they, were, they had been preparing for this moment. Since the Exodus, within three days, this preparation intensified. Um, and then, when you take a look at 471, at the bottom of 471, you have the narrative of the Ten Commandments, God speaking the Ten Commandments, and this is that great moment that we commemorate, we're going to commemorate this coming Sunday, Saturday night and Sunday, um, around the world. Okay. So, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the verses that Lisa read, you may have noticed that the Torah specifies the day, the date, the day that they arrived at the, the Sinai Desert near Mount Sinai. And it says, on the first day of the third month, it's fine. So what's the third month? Nisan, well, fr from, from the Exodus. So Nisan, Er, Sivan. The Exodus happened the 15th day of Nisan. So we're talking about six weeks later, right? Six weeks later is the first day. So you have half of Nisan, the full Er. And now it's the beginning of the next month. So that's four weeks of Er, two weeks, second half of, of Nisan. So six weeks later is the first day of the third month the month of Sivan. The Talmud has a very interesting statement. Text 2a. Peter. Oh, so we're now flipping to, um, to the Torah studies text. To the booklets, to the book. Uh, page 118. Text 2a. Talmud Tractate Shabbat. Take a look at this Talmudic teaching. A scholar taught the following. A chista. A chista. Blessed is the merciful one who gave a three-part Torah to a three-part Jewish nation through Moses, who was the third child in his family, on the third day of the third month, the evening month of Sivan. So the Talmud says, the Talmud quotes an anonymous scholar in this academy of learning. And this scholar says, ah, we find the number three. The Torah tells us that the Jews gathered at the foot of the mountain or in the Sinai Desert on the first day of the third month. So he says, the scholar says, ah, the number three is involved with this whole experience. Look, the Torah has three parts. The Jewish people have three parts. Moses was the third born in his family. It happened on the third day of preparation. Not the third day of Sivan, the third day after the three days of preparation that I mentioned. Right, said that God said to prepare for three days. After three days, they got the Torah in the third month. Take a look at Rashi's explanation. Peter, please continue. Text 2b. Okay. Rashi explains. A three-part Torah, namely the five books of Moses, the books of the prophets, and the scriptural writings. So just uh, let me just uh, interject for a second. Torah is... Comp when we say Torah, what do we mean? Do we mean five books of Moses? Do we mean all of Jewish, Jewish scholarship? So here... Uh, Rashi clarifies that when the Talmud is saying that the Torah has three parts, it means Tanakh. Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim. So the five books of Moses, that's one. All the books of the prophets. So Joshua, Samuel, um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all of, all of that, Jeremiah, all of the, that, that's the second category. So you have Torah, the five books of Moses, Nevi'im, the prophets, and Ksuvim, the writings, like the book of Psalms, the book of Ruth, um, Song of Songs, etc. Continue, please. Okay. To a three-part nation comprised of three groups, Kohanim, Levim, Levi, uh, and Yisraelim. Yeah. Through the third, Moses was the third child. His older siblings were Miriam and Aaron. On the third day, the third day of preparation for the receiving of the Torah. I'll share with you something else. Moses came from which tribe? Tribe of Levi. What order, what number son was Levi to his father Jacob? Reuven, Shimon, Levi. So Moses' tribe was also the third. But nonetheless, the Talmud, that Talmudic scholar did not cite that point. So how would you characterize this Talmudic statement? That in the Sinai experience, you have the number three 
It's kind of, uh, the number three is prominent. Well, there's something about three, like one and two. But let me frame, let, let, me, let me ask it this way. Who cares? I don't mean who cares, but like, it's, it's trivia, it's like Jewish trivia. So what? It's, yeah, exactly, that's my question. So what? Come on, what is this? Oh, threes are wild. It's like, what, is, like what, what are we doing here? It's like, involved in this experience, you have a lot of threes. What do I do with that? What, what, what am I doing with that now? It's, it's, it sounds like Jewish trivia. It's like, the number three, huh? Play the number, right, three, three, three. Like, what, 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 what does it mean? What, what does it do for us? So, a, a trifold nation, priests, Levites, and, and just regular, right, regular Joes, regular Israelim. So you have trifold nation, trifold Torah, tri Moses was the third, the month was the third. Um, what else am I missing? Third day of preparation. So what? I'll ask another question. Second question is, aside from the fact that this piece of trivia seems trivial, aside from that, why wouldn't the number one be the prominent number? Why three? We talk about God being one, the Jewish people being one. If you recall in the second verse that Lisa read, it says, they encamped in the desert, Israel encamped as if they were one single person with one heart. Now that's Rashi's commentary because it says that he camped there opposite the mountain. The Torah says, Vayichan sham Yisrael neged ha'har. He camped there. Not Vayachanu, the plural. They camped there. He camped there. So Rashi says, what does it mean, he camped there? Who's he? In the singular. Like one person with one heart. So the Jews were unified. One nation. Under God. One God. One Torah. So the number one should be the prominent number. The Talmudic scholar says, no, not one. Three. Threes are prominent. So again, two questions. Number one, so what? Who cares? Is this, is this just trivia? Number two, why three? Why not one? Why didn't God give the Torah on the first day of the first month? I know what you're thinking. Because that was Nisan, and you would have to wait almost a year to get back there. Whatever, he would have to figure it out. Right? God can figure out things. But it, the number one should be prominent. Why the number three? The question is amplified. When you explore different methodologies of explicating, of explaining Torah. So I want you to take the Siddur. I, I brought out the Siddur before. Open up your Siddurim to page, I'm going to say it's 26. That's my call. Let's see if I'm right. Ah, so close. 25. Page 25. Take a look. Page 25. And right before we start the, the morning, well, the formal service in synagogue that's recited with the Chazan out loud, at least in Chabad Shuls, beginning with Hodul Hashem Kitov. Before we do that, sorry, it's Hodul Hashem Kiru Vishmo. So before we do that, we recite a Brisa, teaching from the times of the Mishnah. And Rabbi Yishmol is quoted. So look what he says. I'm going to read this, 25. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to skip around a little bit. 25 at the top. Rabbi Shmuel says, the Torah is expounded by means of 13 rules. These are the 13 rules of Torah. I've seen the word written. I've never heard it in, I don't think I've heard it that, that often in conversation. I think it's called exegesis. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. Almost sounds like you can't say that in a synagogue. Exegesis. Like, it's like, whoa. Is that the old one? The act, like... There, was, there were two? It's the exegete? Anyway. But I digress. Okay, here's the point. Here's the point. <laughs> you with me on this? So you spell that E-X-O-G? No, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. -E -E That's my final, huh? I believe it's E-X-I. I don't think so. I think it's E-X-E. Exegesis, yeah. <laughs> Can't not hear now, right? It's like Laurel, or yeah. I have no idea. But that's what it says. Oh, in any I've always seen it. Torah exegesis, whatever that means. It's basically drush. It's 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 taking something and, and extracting information from it, right? It's 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 expounding upon it. So the Torah is expounded through thirteen rules. These thirteen rules were given by God 
to Moses at Sinai saying, look, here's the written law. Here are 13 ways that you can extract more information from these laws. So different rules, we're not going to get into them. But let's focus now for a moment on the 13th rule, the last and final rule on the page. Look at number 13. Similarly, when two biblical passages contradict each other, the meaning can be determined by a third biblical text which reconciles them. Two verses contradict each other. Until the third verse comes along and is machria, is uh, reconciles, justifies, evens them out. So Rabbi Shmuel says, this is a, this is a, um, so what I'm looking for, this is a, not a pattern, um, a methodology, but a way the Torah works in that you'll sometimes find a verse that says one thing, another verse that contradicts it, and you're stuck. So Rabbi Shmuel says, don't worry, there's a third verse somewhere that's going to, re- you have to find the third verse, but the third verse will reconcile it and explain what each of those other two means so that they're all reconciled. We're going to cite now two examples that pertain to the time period of the giving of the Torah and the aftermath of the giving of the Torah. Let's begin with the first example that has to do with where did God's voice emanate from at the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Jonathan, please read, if you will, page 120, text 4a. God said to Moses, So shall you say to the children of Israel, You have seen that in the heavens I have spoken with you. Okay, thank you. Based on this verse from Exodus, right? God is telling Moses what, what to say, but don't focus on that for a moment. Focus on where did God's voice emanate from? Where was God speaking from? What's the answer? From the heavens. Right? Tell the people, you've seen it with your own eyes that I have spoken with you from the heavens. That's one verse. Text 4b. Continue, Jonathan, please. Okay. Uh, from the heavens I have spoken, but another verse states, God descended upon Mount Sinai. Uh, that God spoke from the mountain, not the heavens. Right, so, so Rashi immediately asks a question. This verse says that God spoke, God himself is saying, I spoke to you from the heavens. Another verse says that at Sinai, God descended upon Mount Sinai, which sounds like that if God were then to speak, it would be from where? From the mountain, not from the heavens. So what's going on? So continue. The third verse comes and reconciles them. From the heavens, he let your, hear his voice in order to discipline you. And upon the earth, he displayed his great fire. So Rashi cites two answers. The first one, but the core of it is that there's a third verse that reconciles the two. So he says, what is, what's the third verse? It says, from the heavens there's a voice, and upon the earth there's a fire. Ah, so we have the answer. God's voice emanated from the heavens. From the heavens I spoke. That's accurate. But what does it mean that God descended upon Mount Sinai? Not His voice. It's fire. God's fire descended on Mount Sinai, but God's voice emanated from the heavens. Does it make sense? So Rashi's saying we have a contradiction. One verse says that God spoke to the Jewish people from the heavens. The other one says that God descended on Mount Sinai. So Rashi says a third verse helps us understand this. Third verse says God's voice indeed remained in heaven, but God's presence in the form of fire descended upon the mountain. Continue one more answer that Rashi gives, an alternative to this. Alternatively, So Rashi says, otherwise you can use a different third verse to reconcile it. A third verse that talks about how God bent the heavens down to earth. At Mount Sinai, at the Sinai experience, at, at, at the time of the giving of the Torah, so Rashi is saying in this alternative answer, God lowered the heavens, whatever that means, I don't know what that means, I don't know what that looked like, but God, so to speak, or practically, literally, lowered the heavens to touch 
to blanket, he used the example of a, of a blanket to spread them out over, well, to spread them out over the mountains. He kind of blanketed the mountains with the heavens, so the voice came from the heavens and from the mountain. Came from the heavens and God came upon the mountain, and both are true. What's the point of this? The point is, this is just an illustration of a situation where you have one verse, heavens, one verse, mountain, and a third verse, either of those two options, either sound and fire, or heavens are lowered, whichever third verse you choose, but that third verse will reconcile the contradiction. Make sense? This is just an example. One more example of, of this construct, and then I'm going to ask a question. But one example, one more example, second example of this construct of two verses contradicting each other and then requiring a third verse regarding the Mishkan, the tabernacle. So the Jews got the Torah, Jews got the Ten Commandments. Um, at God spoke the Ten Commandments to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain after that to receive the tablets. Forty days and forty nights, he studies Torah as well. Comes back down with the tablets. And what are the Jews doing, famously? The golden calf. Golden calf. So what does Moses do? He takes the tablets. Smashes them over his knee. Smashes them, that's it. They're done. Smithereens. Finish. Finito. Then he's back up, <laughs> up and down the mountain, asking for forgiveness. Finally gets a second set of tablets. And forgiveness on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is why it's the Day of Atonement for all time. After that, the next big community project is not worshiping a golden calf or asking for forgiveness. It's building a mishkan, building a tabernacle. That's the major project, and it takes many months to pull it off. Okay. The mishkan is built. The mishkan, the tabernacle, so... When we talk about a mikdash, Beit HaMikdash, Holy Temple, that's typically the temple that existed later on in Jewish history in Jerusalem built of stone. So the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was the portable sanctuary. It was the portable sanctuary, the portable temple, if you will, built out of wood and gold so they could transport it on their shoulders or on wagons throughout the desert. It was basically the mobile version of the temple. You can't schlep stones. It's not a thing. It's not possible. But this was portable and lasted for several hundred years. Forty years in the desert, and then after the desert, when they went to Israel, they were using it also for a while, until ultimately they built a temple out of stone, and that was a permanent edifice until it wasn't, and it was destroyed. But back to the Mishkan. The Mishkan also has another name. Has another, has an, uh, there's another name. It's called Ohel Moed. What is the Ohel Moed? Literally, it's translated as the Tent of Meeting. Who was meeting in that tent? So why is it called a tent? So if you've seen pictures of the Mishkan, you know that it, it looks kind of like, I'm just using this as far as just a rectangle. So let's, let's keep it flat because we'll all do a bird's eye view and it's going to be less jarring if it's flat. Okay, so we're all looking at, at, the, at, the, at the footprint of, of the Mishkan. So the Mishkan had an outer wall surrounding the whole space. So let's say this was, the, and the wall was comprised of wood panels, etc. So here you have the outer wall. Inside was a big courtyard, so it was empty space. Inside the empty space, there was a building, a building made of wood walls and a, a curtain covering it. So not, not the most solid, not a super solid structure, not a building, but you know, a, a hut. Also in the shape of a rectangle. So again, you had a large space surrounded by walls. In that space, mostly empty space with a bit of a, a structure inside. Now, that structure was called the Ohamoid, the Tent of Meeting. Why was it called the Tent of Meeting? Because in there, Moses met with God. That's all the communication that happens between Moses and God happens primarily in the Ohamoid, in the Tent of Meeting. It's also where, inside that building, it had the menorah, the candelabra. It had the shulch on the table that had the showbread. It had the inner altar. There was also an outer altar that was just in the courtyard. But inside that building, inside that structure, there was those three items. And then inside, past another curtain, there was a separate chamber. So there was this, 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 this edifice, right? And inside, we have a picture of that. Yeah, it's easier if I just... Yeah, it's probably not easier. But anyway, so, and inside that, behind another curtain, secret compartment was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark. That's like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark with the, gold, the golden Ark, the box. Inside were the tablets. Um, on top of the Ark, hammered out of that gold, pictures of angels, of, of Kruvim, cherubs, that were embracing, whatever it was, that was the Ark, and no one could go inside 
except for the high priest and Yom Kippur. Yeah, 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 yeah. The ark, everything went on wagons except for the ark. The ark had to go on the shoulders. It had poles. So they took it out? Yeah, yeah, they took it out. Yeah. Did they salvage? But they, so yeah, you, they, they would go in there, I guess, to take it out. But otherwise, to perform a service, it would only be on that. Once it was set up, they dismantled it. Yeah, they had to carry it. Did they salvage the gold from the, gold, from the golden calf? I don't think they used that gold. I think that goal. It, on one hand, it's the ultimate transformation. On the other hand, it's like, how Jewish law actually says that something that's used for idolatry, you can never benefit from. So you can't use it. So, the Ohamoid is that, is that space where Moses communes, connects, communicates with God. But where did God's voice emanate from? Precisely. And where was Moses standing? I'm glad you asked. Take a look. We have three, huh? We, we have three verses. Two that are contradictory, and the third that provides reconciliation. Mike, please read text 5a, page 122. So where, according to text 5a, where was the voice emanating from? Above the ark. So in the Holy of Holies, in the, in, the, in the innermost chamber, on top of, right above the ark, that's where the voice was coming. Text 5b. When Moses would enter, when there are two contradictory verses, the third one comes and reconciles them. One verse says... God spoke to him from the tent of meeting, and that implies outside the curtain within the sanctuary, whereas another verse states, and speak to you from above the ark cover, which is beyond the curtain in the Holy of Holies. This third verse comes and reconciles them. When Moses would enter the tent of meetings, he would hear the voice of God coming from the Holy of Holies from, uh, from between the cherubim above the ark cover. The voice emanated from heaven to the uh, to the area between the two cherubim. And from there, it went out to the tent of meeting. Let me explain. The two verses that contradict each other and the third verse, which was text 5a, that was actually the reconciliatory verse that reconciles them. So let's go. The fr one verse says that the voice came from above the ark. Another verse says, which implies that Moses went into the Holy of Holies to com communicate with God. Another verse says that Moses spoke from beyond the curtain. And he wasn't in the Holy of Holies. So which one is it? Did he stand outside? And God spoke to him outside in the main area of that room, uh, of, that, of that structure? Or did he go inside and speak to him from, from the ark cover? So Rashi says, the third verse comes and reconciles. And what's the reconciliation? Moses stood outside the Holy of Holies. He stood outside the curtain. And there's on this side of the curtain, not, not inside, and on the outside. The voice emanated, started from heaven, went down, was channeled above the ark cover, and then came out through the curtain to the main area where Moses was standing, and Moses heard it there. That's what he says. So you see how it's reconciled? One verse sounds like Moses went inside. One verse sounds like it went, the, one voice, one verse Sounds, it makes it sound like the voice was inside the Holy of Holies. One verse says it was outside the Holy of Holies. The answer is it was both. It started off inside and that emanated outside and Moses stood outside and he listened to it from there. So Moses communicated from beyond the curtain, not inside the curtain, beyond the curtain, but communicated with God's voice that started in heaven and then there and then came back out. And Rashi also says in another place that when God spoke to Moses, it was hakol, hakol. That voice, the voice, not that show, but the voice, the voice, the same voice that God used at Mount Sinai that reverberated throughout the entire universe. Everything in, in existence heard and felt that voice at, at the giving of the Torah at Sinai. It was the same voice that Moses heard booming inside the building of the temple, inside that, that, that area, but no one heard it outside. It, it, it remained in that space. It's not possible that such a loud voice should remain in that space, but 
listen, there's, there are no limitations on God. So that, that, that infinite voice, in a sense, was contained in a finite space. That's an aside. The point here is, these are two examples. God speaking at Sinai, God speaking in the, in the tabernacle, in the Mishkan, two examples where you have two verses that contradict each other and the third verse that reconciles them. And here we have the same question. Why three? Why not one? What's my question? What's my question? Why bring one verse and then a contradictory verse and then you need a third verse Who's writing this thing? Can we just write from the beginning what the point is? Can we just write clearly how the process happened? You have to have one verse that makes it seem like this way. Another verse that seems to contradict. And then a third verse that makes peace between the two. Well, what are we doing here? Well, why? Why the number three? Why not one? Why not verses that tell you straight up what's going on? Why the confusion? So... As we close out the first section, we're left with two areas of inquiry. Number one, why is it that the Talmud tells us that the number three is prominent with regards to the giving of the Torah at Sinai? Number one, who cares? Number two, why three and why not one? And our second area of inquiry is with regards to studying Torah and how Torah sometimes is expounded upon or understood we have this model of three verses that are needed because two of them are contradictory and the third one provides the answer. Why not just provide the answer without the questions? Those are two major areas of inquiry. So let's continue now. Continue on our, on our journey to understand not only the answer to these questions, but really to take a step back and understand what is the role of Torah, what is the role of God vis-a-vis -vis Torah and us vis-a-vis -vis Torah, and what happened at Sinai? Why is it such a big deal that we got the rule book? We got the DMV, we got the, you know, the, the manual of life. What's, what's the big deal? So let's begin with a verse from Deuteronomy 7a. We're, we're beginning to answer the questions with 7a. Curse be he Seemingly, the Torah is telling us in the book of Deuteronomy that a person should keep the words of Torah, and if not, there might be consequences. But the Talmud says something non-intuitive. Take a look at 7b. Cursed be he who does not uphold the words of this Torah. Rabbi Shimon ben Yakim said, this refers to the leader of the congregation. Hmm. So he says, it doesn't just mean a person that doesn't up, up, uh, uphold the Torah there might be consequences, but it means the leader of the congregation who does not uphold the words of Torah. You know what's interesting? The verse says, Asher lo yakim. And who is the rabbi that's commenting? Shimon ben yakim. You notice that? The Hebrew word, Arur asher lo yakim, et devrei Torah la sototam, means cursed is he who does not fulfill, uphold, yakim. The rabbi's name was Shimon ben Yakim. It's, it's, it's interesting that his father's name was the name of, maybe that's why he commented on this verse. I don't know. Maybe he felt a kinship with this verse. But anyway, he tells us that it's referring to Zahachazan. This is the chazan, the leader of the congregation. What's going on? What's the leader of the congregation doing that he's getting in trouble and getting cursed? If he's the leader of the congregation, he's probably upholding the Torah. Why else is he the leader of the congregation? Usually a point as the leader of the congregation, someone who is upholding Torah. So what's going on here? So take a look at what Ramban Nachmanani says. Sorry, text 8. I would suggest that this statement of the Talmud refers to a congregational leader who does not lift the Torah scroll for the congregation to show everyone the light. Let me stop here for a second. Doesn't mean that the leader of the congregation is not fulfilling the words and, dict and mandates of Torah, not fulfilling Torah mitzvot. But someone who practically does not uphold, literally, literally, like uphold, like lift up the Torah, if you're in a shul, you're in the synagogue, and someone does not, the leader, whoever it is, does not do Hagba. We call it Hagba, right? Lift up the Torah. So that's when the problems start. That's when the consequences kick in. Continue. As we find explicitly in Tractate Sofim, it is our custom to lift the Torah and display its writing to the congregation standing to its right, then its left, in front of him and in back of him. Because it is a mitzvah for all men and women to see the writing and bow and say, 
Right, we sing it, we say it. So here we have a source, the Ramban, Nachmaris, he's quoting Tratate Sofrim, which is one of the Talmudic Tratates. And the, the basic point here is that you have to lift the Torah. It's not enough to read the Torah at the Torah reading. You have to also show the congregation by lifting it up. And you turn it around, you rotate it so that everyone should see the men and the women, he says. Anoshim v'noshim. Men and women should see. Hopefully, you can see through the trees over there. No? Oi. Oi, vey. We've got to work on that. We've got to make our trees a little more transparent. Um, all right, listen. I, I won't tell anybody if you do a little bit of a, of a foliage, you know, you do some pruning at some point. No, I'm kidding. Not, not on Shabbat. Um, you can move them, but no. So Hagba lifting the Torah is important. And if you don't lift the Torah, that's how he's interpreting the verse. He, Nachmanis is saying this is what the Talmud means when it's interpreting the verse to say this is when you're cursed. If you don't lift the Torah, not if you don't uphold the Torah. That's obvious. That's too easy. But if you don't lift up the Torah, it also is deserving of curses. What? If you don't lift up the Torah, you get cursed? I can think of a lot, more, a lot worse things than not lifting up the Torah. Why is it such an egregious, why is it so bad? To not lift up the Torah. It's a nice thing. It's a nice, yeah, we lift it up. We do a little kazatska, we do a little cha-cha, whatever it is, right? And it's, it's a nice thing. But what, you get cursed if you don't? Such a, such a severe thing? What's the significance of Hagba lifting the Torah? I'll tell you a story. There was once a fellow who got called up to lift the Torah to do the Hagba. And he tried and he couldn't. He wasn't strong enough to do it. And he felt very embarrassed. So he hit the gym. He's like, that's it. It's never going to happen again. He hit, he's pumping iron for six months. He doesn't go to shul. He just, he's there in the gym. He schwitz into the oldies. And the whole thing, remember that? Richard Simmons, you remember that? Schwitz into the oldies. Anyway, he's pumping iron. On, I pump you up. Right? He, the whole thing, he's getting it going. Six months later, he returns to the synagogue. And this guy, he's ripped. He can't even fit into his jacket. He can't even fit through the door. The talus, just, just, he just shreds the talus as he like, puts it on. Anyway, they call him up. He gets up there, proud. He grabs the handles. He doesn't even use leverage. He just lifts it up. He throws it around, twirls it in air, catches it. And they look at him, and, and the rabbi, the rabbi, is very nice, but we called you up for an aliyah. <laughs> yeah, it's the old uh, aliyah hagba trick. Anyway, good. So that's, that's, my hagba, that's the only hagba joke I know. That's, that's all I got. Getting back to the question. The question is, why is Hagba so important in the absence of which we have curses? Like, seriously, so important that it should, it should deserve, the consequence should be curses if you don't lift it up. So we need to explain this through, in my opinion, just a magnificent, a magnificent parable. I mean, it's a, real, it's a real story. It's a real situation. But it's, for our purposes, it's a, it's a parable and it's absolutely stunning. All right, Steve, take it away. Text 9a. In bygone days, every city had a tall clock tower that was accessible by ladder only. It was said that the purpose of making the clock so high was twofold. First, so that it should be visible from a distance. But more importantly, because every person was expected to calibrate his or her watch according to its time, it was necessary to keep the clock out of reach. Otherwise, each person would tamper with it and adjust its time according to his or her watch, and the clock would become irrelevant. Isn't that great? I love that. I, can't, I, can't, I love that on so many levels. So you have the clock tower, right? Big Ben, right? I am a Steelers fan, but not him, but the, the actual clock. Um, back to the Future. Remember the clock? Yep. Right? That got hit by lightning or something. There's a whole story. The guy went back to the... Right? There's a whole thing. Right? The, the DeLorean. The point is, right? Clock towers, watch... They're high. Why are they high? Two reasons. Number one, so everyone, sh everyone should be able to see it. So it has to be visible from a distance. The second reason is beautiful, though. I like it better than the first. The first is too pragmatic. The second one is, is just... It's delicious. The point of the clock is to tell you what time it is, not for you to tell it what time it is. You don't tell the clock. The clock tells you. And so the clock is up there so that you can't touch it. Because if it was down here, 
can't trust people. People have access to the clock. The next thing you know, whoops, whoops, right? That's why we put the clock all the way up there and we put a bookshelf here at Chabad. Try to get up there. I dare you because there's snakes up there. And it's, I'm kidding, there aren't. Whatever, and it's fast, I think. Uh, maybe, a minute or two. Here's the point. Here, here's, here's the nakuda. here's the idea. The clock tower, the clock is up because we are meant to conform to its time. We're meant to adjust our watches and our clocks to that time. If it was low, the fear is we would tamper with it to adjust it to our time. And if everybody is mishing zich, right? Mishing zich, like if everybody's mixing in and tampering with the clock, you know what happens? There's no point to have a clock. What's the point to have a clock? Everyone's moving it backwards and forwards, right? Everyone's, everyone's misguided watches and clocks. Everyone's up by a few minutes and you're moving the central clock, then there's no central clock. Then you don't have an objective measure of time. You see where we're going with this? You see why we lift the Torah up? What's the message? You tell me before we read text 9b. You guys know this now, right? Why do we lift up the Torah? What's, the, what's lifting up the Torah like? So everyone can see it. Number one, everyone can see it. And number two, to illustrate this concept that what? You don't tamper Ah, oh, this is the law. This is Torah. It's not meant, we're not meant to adjust the Torah to our, to our light, right? Well, I don't like this one. Let's, let's knock this one out. You know, let's add another one, right? Hold on. Let me grab a pen here and just, just dabble in that. That's not what happens. And I know we don't keep the Torah up on the, on the tower the whole time. It's in the ark. It's on the bima. We read it, etc. Fine. But at least once in the synagogue, once at the, at the, at the um, experience of the Torah reading, we lift it up to demonstrate, number one, everyone should see it. But number two, we're meant to live by the Torah and can, to move ourselves to the rhythm of the Torah and not, um, and not adjust the Torah to fit our sensibilities. Might, might be. It might be. That might be at the core of it. So that it should be seen by the congregation. I know they do hagwa before they read. Yeah. The, the custom is they do hagwa before and then they read. And they, but they put it up. You're right. They, put it, they read it vertically. Oh, they read it vertically? Yes. Oh my God. It's the coolest thing. It doesn't look anything like this. It's a, a big case. It's like a wooden, it's like a big wooden case. Or silver case or whatever it is, and it it just it, it opens. It's I mean it's still a scroll, but it, it opens flat, but it's it's vertical. It's up and down. So the reader reads it, you know, just like this. But the point is, the congregation can see it. Yeah, they roll it on top. It's it's different. Could be, but here's the point. Hagba is done to dem to bring out this idea. We are supposed to move to the clock of Torah and not move the clock of Torah to us. Why not? What's so wrong if we, if we modified some stuff? What's the big deal? Well, on one level, on a basic level, then, then we don't have Torah anymore. So what's Torah? If Torah is ever-changing, if we adapted Torah in every generation based on what was in, so then what would Torah be? Torah wouldn't be anything. It would just be a reflection of whatever culture is prevalent, whatever, whatever is in. So then there's no objective thing called Torah. There's no objective thing called Judaism. If, if Torah is at the center of Judaism, so then there's no Judaism anymore. So to preserve the integrity of the clock of Torah of Judaism, so it has to remain out of touch. No one's tampering with it on a very basic level. Fine. So again, on, on a very simple level, what it means is that we're meant to live by the laws of Torah. Number one, because that's, that gives Torah its integrity. And number two, we could say, that because God prescribes the best way to live, right? We, we, we would imagine that the creator, the author of life, the designer of the machine, of the human, being, of the human machine, knows the best way for it to run. Right? If you build a sports car, so you'll know how to keep it running, how often it needs oil, how often, what, what type of gasoline it needs, etc. And you can tell somebody that buys your custom modified sports car, this is what you need to do. If you don't, it's going to break down. So God says, I'm the author of humanity, and I'm telling you, this is the best way to live. You could live other ways, but the best way is this way. So if we start modifying it, so it's no longer the best way. It's our way. It's no longer necessarily God's way. 
So that's a very simple idea of understanding of why Torah needs to be lifted up and, 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 and remain in its pure, pure form. But there's another idea, and this is at the heart of the matter that we're speaking of today. If Torah is modified, it doesn't only lose its practical guidance, it loses something, in my opinion, much more important. And that is, it loses its divine quality. Torah, authored by God, is divine. It's godly. The moment you modify it, the moment you mess with the code of Torah, is the moment it's no longer God's. It's yours. It's ours. And that's fine, but it's not God's. So when you do it, you're not connecting with Hashem. You're connecting with yourself. I think that this is the best way to live. Okay, good. So live like that. But who are you connecting with? Your own sensibilities. When you, li- when you do a mitzvah, whether you understand it and you would also want to do it anyway, or whether you don't understand it, when you do a mitzvah, as is written in the code that God composed, when you do that mitzvah, Suddenly, in addition to living the best way per the, the, the architect of humanity, in addition to that, you're also now in a relationship with God because you connect with the author. The moment you tamper with the code, the seal is broken. It's like medication. Do not, <laughs> don't try it, right? You, you get a prescription, you open it up, and the seal is broken. You probably want to take that back. It's not, it's been tampered with. It's not the pure stuff. Torah in its purity, in its pure form, lifted up in its original letter for letter, word for word, composition, that's divine. Anything else is man-made. So a simple question, who do you want to connect with? People or divine? Divine is clearly the right answer, right? No, divine is... right. So the, the, power, the magic of Torah is that it doesn't only teach us right from wrong and moral living and higher living and all that stuff, but it affords us the opportunity to be in a relationship with the author. God says, study these words, follow these laws, and now you connect with me because I gave you this. And if you study it, so that you're connecting with me. That's a powerful idea. Take a look at text number A. Take a look at text, sorry, not A, text number 10, uh, page 127. David, please read this, text 10, we're skipping text 9, text 10, from the Talmud. Rabbi Yochanan sought the word Anochi, the first word of the Ten Commandments, <coughs> I am the Lord your God, etc., etc., is an abbreviation of the statement, I myself wrote and gave. So Anochi, Rabbi Yochanan taught in the Talmud, Stands four letters of the word Anochi, Aleph Nun Chaf Yud, stand for four Hebrew words. Or actually four Aramaic. Aramaic, a little bit, yeah. So Ana Nafshi Kasivat Yavit. So I myself wrote it and gave it. Anochi. I myself, God says, I myself wrote it and gave it. The Torah is mine, the composition is mine, and I gave it. Kabbalah says more than just God writing it and giving it, I committed myself. Anonafshi, my nefesh, my soul, God says, I put into Torah. God is not only saying, I wrote Torah and I gave it to you, but I put my soul, my essence, so to speak, of God. God says, I put my essence into Torah and gave it to you. So when we have Torah, when we hold on to Torah, we're not just holding on to laws and information, even the best information that doesn't capture the, the true quality of Torah. What, what is Torah? The opportunity to connect with God. There's no other way to connect with God other than God's terms. You can't climb to heaven on a ladder. It's not going to happen. The only way is to, to, to catch on, to hold on to what God puts down in front of us to grab onto. Right? We're here. God's elsewhere. God's, God's above. I mean, not literally, but God's on a, on a different level of existence. And God gives us Torah to allow us to hold on to something to then have a relationship with Him in that way. So that's the power of Torah, and that's the reason why Torah, it's so important to keep Torah in its pure form, because in its pure form, it is indeed divine, as opposed to um, modified and, and amended and adjusted by human beings. 
which which would rob Torah of its divine of its divinity of its divine quality, thus rendering Torah man-made and would not afford human beings the opportunity to connect with the divine. Does that make sense? Okay. So why do you call it modifying? Because yeah. So many <laughs> right. A lot of the modification that we find. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it means it means like a like a bit modification. So when when the rabbis and the sages interpret or whatever it is, usually they're following the thirteen rules that we read before, which are divine given. So it's part of the divine formula. God says, work with these rules, and it's still within my in my context. You're asking a very good question. What constitutes a pure purity, and what constitutes you know? Is there any option for? Is there any possibility for originality? In Torah, and how does that work with it being God's pure Torah? That's a core question today's discussion, but it's going to take a little too long to develop that. The, the idea is that, that, we, that if it's staying authentic to, to, the, to the message, then it still is pure form. The moment we were adding, deleting, whatever, that's the moment where, where, things, uh, th- where things change a little bit and things are modified. So the point here is that Torah, in addition to being a guidebook for living or a rule book, right? This is what you do, this is what you don't do. Torah is something much deeper than that. Torah is the key to a relationship. So I asked the being of the class, why do we celebrate Shavuot? We got the laws. Why are we dancing? We don't dance necessarily. Why are, we, why are we eating cheesecake? Why are we celebrating? Why is it a holiday? We got the rule book. So why are we celebrating that? Study it and whatever, but why a celebration? Because more than a rule book, we got God. We didn't just get his rules. We got him. God gave us the opportunity to be in a relationship with him through the rules. We follow these rules or we study this Torah. The wisdom and the will of Torah, uh, the, wis- the will and the wisdom of God is found in Torah. You study that. You live by that. Now you're connected. It's an amazing thing. So we don't celebrate the law. We celebrate the author of the law and the fact that now we can have a relationship with God. Which explains the third seemingly confusing statement from our sages. The first Talmudic statement that we questioned was why the number three? And we haven't answered that yet. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. Why the number three? Why is it a prominent thing? The second question was why is not lifting the Torah such a big, why is this such a big deal? We've explained that one. The third, now let's, let's deal with one more piece. Famous Midrash that talks about God shopping the Torah around to all the nations. Text 12, page 131 or 132. Famous, famous text. It's, be- it's, it's fascinating, and there's a very, very deep idea here. When God offered the Torah to, the, when God offered the Torah to Israel, He offered it not to Israel alone, but to all the nations. First, God went to the descendants of Esau and said to them, Will you accept the Torah? They responded, What is written in it? God said to them, You shall not murder. They replied, Master of the universe, the very identity of our father Esau was the murderer, and it is said, But the hands are the hands of Esau, and his father Jacob promised him the sword alone. By the sword you shall live. We are not able to accept the Torah. No deal. God went to the descendants of Ammon and Moab and said to them, Will you accept the Torah? They said, What is written in it? God replied, You shall not commit adultery. They said, Master of the universe, the very identity of our people comes from sexual immorality. As it is said, thus were the two daughters of Lot pregnant from their father. We are not able to accept the Torah. No deal. God went to the descendants of Ishmael and said to them, Will you accept the Torah? They said, What is written in it? God answered, You shall not steal. They said, Master of the universe, the very identity, identity of our father is stealing and robbery. As it is said, and Ishmael shall be a wild man his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. We are not able to accept the Torah. There was no nation that God did not approach and ask if, he, if it wanted to accept the Torah. No one can say that God favored the Jewish people. God shopped it around. And everyone said, no. What does it say? God said, you want the Torah? Well, what does it say? Don't do this. Don't do this. Forget it. <laughs> You're taking out killing? Forget about it. Taking out adultery? No way. Taking out theft? Can't do it. One after the other, the nations rejected the Torah. What happens when God came to the Jewish people? 
What did the Jews famously say? We'll do it. We accept it. Let us know later what it says. But sight unseen, we're accepting it. I'll ask you the obvious question. Who was smarter? Who was smarter? No? I don't think so. Who's smarter? They were smart. The nations of the world were smart. The Jews are a bunch of, yeah, oh, how much does it cost? It's free, I'll take two. I mean, so who does that? <laughs> That's with the tablets. Right. Well, who was smart? The nations were smart. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not accepting. Somebody says, can you do me a favor? Tell me what it is, and then I'll say yes. I'm not going to say yes, and then it's an open-ended, you know, tell me, you know, you ask for the moon. Tell me what it is, and then I'll tell you if it's, if it's doable. They sound reasonable. You know what the Jews sound like? Unreasonable. Who said, not in, a, not in a, um, an obstinate way, but in the other way, like in a foolish way. They're unreasonably naive. Who says yes before knowing what it says? What kind of, what kind of mishigas is this? Who says yes before knowing what it says? Are, are you ready to live by this law? Yeah. You don't want to know what it says? No, just tell me later. And thousands of years later, we're still paying the price. No, I'm kidding. It's not paying the price. Right? I'm joking. Huh? That's what happened with Obamacare. Well, hold on. All right. We're not, not getting political at all. No, no. No, no, no. So here's the point. Here's the point. The other nations, we typically say, oh, every other, look, they didn't accept the Torah, they had this excuse, that excuse, and the Jews, they were willing to accept the Torah. But if you look at it rationally, they were more rational than the Jews. But it's more than who was more rational. The question is, what were the Jews thinking? If you think, if you conceive of Torah as a book of laws, then you need to know what the laws say. But if the Torah is a book of love, and it's a book of a relationship, Right? If the book, if this Torah is not a book of laws, do this, don't do that, oh, it's the rules, it's the, it's, the, it's the DMV law book. It's not the DMV law book. You know what it is? It's the opportunity to hug God. It's the opportunity to embrace God, to embrace the infinite. Do you need to know what it says? It doesn't matter what it says. Even if we were commanded to cut trees, the Talmudic scholars would say, we would, do it with, we would do it gladly. It doesn't matter what it says. You're offering an opportunity to connect with God. God says to all the nations, do you want to receive my law? Everyone hears law. You know what the Jews heard? My. Everyone else heard law. Oh, well, what, 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 what are the rules? I'm not, I'm not, tell me what the rules are and I'll tell you if I want this law. The Jews heard my law. The moment God says it's mine, it's yours, I want a piece of it. I want a piece of you. Not, not in like, I want to, it sounds wrong. Not, let's meet at the back alley. No. God says, this is my Torah. This is my will. This is my wisdom. This is the opportunity to convene with the divine. Doesn't matter what it says. The answer is yes. We'll take it. So what happened at Sinai 3,330 years ago, almost, is that the Jews, the Jewish people, received the greatest gift that human beings were ever given, and that is the Torah, which the Torah gives a human being the opportunity to connect with God, to be in a real relationship with God on God's terms, not on a human being's terms. Not, I'm going to meditate and discover God. No, because you don't know who you're discovering. How do you know that that's God? But on God's terms. God says, this is what I want you to study. This is what I want you to do. And when you do that, now you have a relationship. Because it's on God's God told you what it means to be in a relationship. It's like your spouse says, can you uh, go to the corner store and get a newspaper? And you say, I don't think you want a newspaper. I'm not going to do it. And they say, no, I, I really want the newspaper. Like, nah, if I were, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to feel my love for you in my heart. And that's how we're connected. And meanwhile, you're like, I just want the newspaper. Like, just. Okay, I'll download it. No, I'm kidding. Right? Newspaper is a bad example. But the point is, right, how do you, how do you relate to someone? How, how do you engage with someone? On their terms. Otherwise, you're just engaging on your own terms. So Torah affords us the opportunity to engage with God on God's terms. That is the gift of Torah. That's what we celebrate. And now we know why the number three is so important. Because the number three means relationship. Number one means single. Two means diversity. Three 
Three is the number of merging. Three is the number of relationships. Three is shalom. Three is the word, three is the number of peace. Again, Judaism teaches, Kabbalah and other sources as well, one evokes unity, oneness, but singularity. There's only, you don't have a relationship with one, you just have one. Two is the idea of fragmentation. You have one and another one. I don't hear a relationship yet. I just see two, I just see two individuals. We had one, now we have another one. That's two. Three is the convergence of those two connected. Three is shalom, three is peace. When we, when we uh, finish the Amida or the Kaddish and we say, Oseh Shalom Ben Ramav, we bow in three directions. One, two, and back in the middle. Right, Left, right, and back into the middle. There's three. Shalom comes in three. The number, of, the, 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 the number that evokes peace is three. Relationships, three. So now we understand why the Talmud said, Oh, the shin. The shin of Shalom also has three. That's, I like that. It also has three heads, three tops. Right? It, it, has a bar, it has a base. One, two, three branches. I like that. So in the final analysis, we understand why the opening Talmudic passage that we read, where the rabbi, the anonymous rabbi in the Talmudic Academy says, the Torah that's comprised of three was given to the nation comprised of three by the, ch- by the third child, Moses, in the third day of preparation, the third month. And we asked, why three? What does it mean for us? What's the message? Why are you telling me this trivia? And why was it three anyway? Why not one? The answer is because this evokes, this brings out, this tells us the whole point of Torah and Shavuot and this whole experience. It wasn't about finding oneness. It's about finding a relationship with God. God, us, that's two. Our relationship, that's three. That's the Torah, that's Sinai, that's Shavuot. And that's something that we can celebrate every day of our lives. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies.